Uh, if you could turn in your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter four verses one to four, that's our text for this morning. So we're taking a quick break from our series in Philippians. So last week we had our baptism service, uh, which was a wonderful time to see uh, God's work in in three young people's lives. Uh, And this week uh, I'm going to be preaching on preaching, a sermon of sermons. Uh, So I'm calling it a meta-sermon for those of you who are nerdy enough to understand what that means. (laughs) Um, Right, so 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the word of God. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for being able to gather here this morning and to be able to uh, extol your name through singing. Lord, thank you for being able to be unified in Christ and, and be together in one place. Uh, Lord, and there's something special that, that takes place when we do that. Lord, we thank you for this church. Thank you for uh, what you're doing here. Thank you for the way that you've sustained it uh, over the years. And and Lord, we uh, look forward to uh, your plans that you have in store for us. Uh, and Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that Lord, we know from earlier in 2 Timothy that it's useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness, uh, and that we can be fully equipped just by um, understanding your word well. Uh, So Lord, we thank you that your word provides everything we need. Um, It it sustains us. It gives us life. Uh, And Lord, as we come to study your word today, we pray that, Lord, uh, that it would not leave us uh, without um, changing us. Lord, that we would be um, yeah, changed in our thinking, changed in our hearts by what you would have for us this morning. Uh, and Lord, pray that we would be a church that believes the right things about you, Lord, that we would not wander off into myths or heresies, but Lord, that you would uh, keep us on the right track, help us to um, understand your word and to, and to use it correctly. We pray for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do this morning is to put this in context, and and that is to ask this question, why do we do what we do at church? It's a question that we need to ask ourselves at any church, and in particular at Christ Sanctuary, not just once, but all the time, because what happens is if we have traditions and things that we do and we don't have good reasons for that, then it becomes unhelpful and it becomes a barrier. So an example would be singing. Why do we do that? Is singing really necessary? Can we substitute it with something else like poetry or flower arranging or you know, some group activity? Why not? After all, singing might not be that enjoyable for some people. But when you read the Bible, you find that there are good biblical reasons that we sing. It's to hear God's word. It lets it dwell in our hearts. It encourages one another and And music has a way of speaking to the heart in which other media 
simply can't. Right? And of course it's found in the Bible. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. And Colossians 3.16 says it similarly. So John, I preached on this a couple of months back. So therefore at church we sing. Another example would be the Lord's Supper. Why do we do that? It's not because we find comfort in old traditions of the church or because we get a little peckish towards the end. That, that's what the morning tea's for if you're a bit confused on that one. But it's because the Lord said to his followers, do this in remembrance of me. Because it's a sign that the Lord is returning and it's a sign of our unity that we have in Christ and, and it encourages us. So these things are ordinary things that we do that the Spirit uses to bless and encourage us. So we do that once a month as well. And of course we could go through others. Why do we have Bible studies during the week? Why do we do Sunday school? Why do we even meet on a Sunday instead of a Friday night or something else? The list goes on. Baptisms, we had those last week. What's the biblical basis for those? Because if we don't have a good biblical understanding of what we're doing, then what happens is we put up barriers. We're saying, we do this. If you want to come in, you have to do this too, right? We saw this in the Judaizers that um, we've been talking about uh, in Philippians, right? They said the gospel plus circumcision is what you need to follow Christ. So if there are barriers there, then uh, that's an unhelpful thing. Just as a random example, let's say in our church that every Sunday morning we had a procession, right? So Jono would wear a robe and walk in first, and then the elders would come in behind, and the deacons would bring various articles of faith, you know, and that was what we did every Sunday because that was a tradition, right? And there's no nothing particularly sinful about doing that, but there's no reason to do it based on the Bible. And so therefore it becomes an unhelpful thing, right? It's awkward. People wonder, why do you do that? So we have to be very careful about what we do and understand why we do it. So this morning I want to ask that question about preaching. Is preaching a non-negotiable for the church? Is it a biblically sanctioned activity that we do on a Sunday? Or... Is it just something that we do because of tradition? Because we have so many historical preachers with magnificent beards to imitate and we're hanging on to this outdated method and, you know, some people say it's authoritarian. Did I say that right? Yep. Or patriarchal, you know, that one person gets up here and tells everyone else what to do and we're kind of perpetuating this, this nasty system. I've heard that one before. You know, and some people don't like preaching. And there are lots of other things that we could do instead. We could have group discussions. We could watch a thought-provoking movie together. We could all read books individually and, and get together and discuss it. Uh, we could you know, just have testimonies each week. So why does it have to be preaching? So what I want to do is look at three reasons from our passage as to why preaching is indeed vital for our church and indeed any church. So let's get started. So the first reason that we can take from our text is that preaching bears witness to the gospel. So just to set the scene for you, so Paul is training Timothy to be a minister of the word, and as part of that ministry, Timothy is to preach. But this is a charge that doesn't just come from Paul, right? It's made in the presence of God himself, and indeed it actually comes from God. So Paul's kind of saying, this is a command that comes from God. You need to listen up. 
And the charge, of course, is as weighty as they come. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So this, is, this isn't just a preach if you think that people might be interested of what you've got to say. You know, it, it's, it's very important. But as well as communicating the importance of, uh, of the preaching, Paul is also laying the foundation for Timothy's preaching. And what is that? That is that everything that is preached starts and finishes with the gospel of Christ. That gospel is, of course, that Christ, the Son of God, entered into earth and established the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection, and he will one day return to judge those who are living and those who have died, and that those who believe that Jesus came to die for their sins and have repented of their selfish ways are saved by grace and will spend eternity in God's glorious presence. Right? That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's what we preach. It's a simple message, but it's a contrary message to what we get from the world. And we, like Timothy, are called to preach this gospel week in, week out, in season, out of season, both for those who do not yet believe and those who are already part of the church and do believe. So all preaching must be centered on the gospel. That's the big idea here. Firstly, it's the reason for preaching in the first place, because we have good news to share. It's the motivation for preaching, that we want to see people receive this great news and to be saved by it and encouraged by it going on. Right? It's also the topic of the preaching. We preach Christ crucified. And at the end, it's also the exhortation of preaching. The preacher is giving a call to repent and to believe the gospel. So from start to finish, the act of preaching is all about the gospel of Christ. So that means that if someone's standing up here and the gospel's nowhere to be found, then effectively that's not preaching as far as the Bible is concerned. People can say very motivational things, be very eloquent, be very persuading, but if it's not in the end linked back to the truth about Christ and the need for salvation by grace, then that is in fact what the Bible calls false teaching. And that's unhelpful and we're going to look at that a bit later on. So this doesn't mean that the gospel needs to be spelled out in exactly the same words every Sunday, right? It's not a rhetoric or a chant that we kind of repeat, right? But everything that we do, everything that we say, is ultimately flavoured and points towards the gospel of Christ. And it's the standpoint from which we analyse the Bible and the world out there. So if that all makes sense, that preaching is all about the gospel, but why does God choose preaching as his primary method of proclaiming the gospel. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about that. And what we see is that it actually follows the biblical pattern. So if we go right back to the prophets, we see that the prophets were using vocal methods to get their message across, right? They spoke verbally in front of the kings and, and the other sinners of the time, the Israelites who needed to repent, right? It was, it was compelling, it was in your face, it was right there, right? We fast forward to Jesus, right? As far as we know, Jesus didn't write anything on paper, right? He, he scrawled something in the ground, uh, in the dirt, right? But other than that, Jesus spoke, Jesus preached, Jesus dealt with people face to face. He engaged directly with them. Even Paul, right? We know, of course, Paul wrote letters. But Paul began by preaching with that group, right? He was preaching and teaching in person. He was reasoning. 
Uh, it, was, it was a very personal experience. And then when he did write to them, he often expressed a longing to be with them in person. Right? It's, it's as if writing to them wasn't, wasn't enough, that, that he needed that uh, personal communication and, and to be there in person because it was encouraging uh, for them and for him. So what we see is this pattern that speaking in person is a much richer form of communication and a much richer way of proclaiming the gospel than other ways. Right? And that's why that preaching as well is a direct verbal communication and, and it can be a very powerful tool. As a bit of an example, um, if you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend or if you remember those days, um, you know, and you text each other backwards and forth, you know, you, that's what people did, at least uh, when we were teenagers. Right, and you get this text and you think, oh, what does that mean? Are they angry with me? Or, or are they just joking with me? Or is that sarcastic? Like, you know, close sarcasm comment at the end. Who knows, right? It's very, it can be very hard to tell based on a small text, right? Because texting is naturally a very limited way of communicating, right? And a lot gets lost, right? You could go, you know, you could step up through better ways of communicating, writing proper letters, emails, whatever, um, or speaking on the phone, right? Bit of a lost art these days, but it's a lot better than texting if you want to know what someone means. Or even better, speaking in person, Right, it's the same. It's the same deal. That's that's part of the reason why preaching uh, from one person to the church in person is such an effective way. And the core of this is that preaching, at its heart, is not just information transfer. Right, preaching is it's an appeal. It gets emotional. <laughs> I don't get emotional very often, but yep, might happen. <laughs> and it's people relating to people. Okay, it's, and it happens best in person. And that helps to unify us because we're all here. We're all hearing the same message at the same time. And so we hear God's word together and we can encourage one another based on what we hear. And that wouldn't be possible with, uh, or at least as easy with other forms of communication. So that's the first reason that we preach the gospel, that it is founded on the gospel. And because it's such an effective way of communicating it. The second reason then is that preaching builds up the body of believers, right? Builds up the church. So back to our text. It says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So preaching first bears witness to the gospel. And secondly, it builds up the church, the body of believers. And Paul uses three verbs in their imperative form here. Uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So let's take those words one at a time and, and see what they mean. I'll admit these don't sound like particularly friendly words if you're thinking about being built up by preaching, but ultimately these words and these actions are here for the good of the body. So reprove first means to correct, fairly simply, and that's what some of your, version, some of your versions of the Bible will say. And primarily here, when we talk about reproof, we're talking about correcting false doctrine. Okay, So wrong ideas about God and Jesus that don't line up with the scriptures and need to be corrected. Right? And this is an important part of preaching. With so many false worldviews out there, some secular sources, some from spiritual sources, some from sources claiming to be Christian, the call of the preacher is to set straight 
our theology and to continue to do so. All right, so it's a way of protecting the church from false doctrine, which would otherwise infiltrate and helps us to grow in biblical knowledge. Rebuke is a similar word, and sometimes it's actually a translation from the same Greek word as from what we get reproved, right? So it's very similar. But its probable meaning here is to correct false action, false conduct, right? So that's sin. So this effectively protects the church from immorality and encourages the church to be holy and to love God and to love people. Exhort, the third word, means to urge, right? Or to strongly encourage. And this is the most positive of the three. So we say, don't do this, reprove, don't believe that, rebuke, other way around. And exhortation says, in the light of the finished, Christ, finished work of Christ, be freed from your sin and live for him. Not out of fear of punishment or competition or anything like that, but for the joy of knowing Christ and partaking in his mission. So exhortation leads eventually to the joy of the body of Christ. So we have three main ways in which the preaching of the word builds up the body of Christ. And Paul says that binding all this together, that this is to be done with complete patience and teaching. All right, so if you're worried that preaching is not going to be very fun for you because of all the reproof and the rebuke coming your way, remember that the aim of the preacher is always to do that in love uh, and patience and with gentleness. And now it's worth considering the question, is teaching the same as preaching? All right, a lot of debate about this. We won't go into all of it right now, but if we go back to our text, it would appear that the answer is no. So it says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete with complete patience and teaching, right? So effectively what it's saying is that teaching can be a part of preaching, but that teaching does not equal preaching. Teaching is about changing and growing the mind over time, right? About training, about biblical truth, understanding, encouragement in the faith. And preaching does need to include this, right? We, don't, we need to not forget that. But preaching is more than that in the end, isn't it? Preaching is above all a proclamation of the gospel, like a, like a herald would bring good news to a town. Preaching in the same way brings the good news of Christ to the people. And the whole idea is not just to furnish the mind, but that the spirit would captivate the heart also. So that's why these elements are in here. Rebuke, exhort. It calls to repentance. It brings the joy of Christ. It galvanizes. It fills the listeners with the power of the spirit. Right, There's something special going on here. And again, this is ordinary words from an ordinary guy. Sorry, Jono, but <laughs> Jono's just an ordinary guy. <laughs> but the Spirit comes. The Spirit uses that. So for the, for the believer, the Spirit uses the words from the preacher to save, to sanctify, to redeem. So... You know, you think of other other ways of teaching. So we have our midweek groups, we have seminars, we have Christian books. Right? I'm not saying that the Spirit can't work through those means, and he does. But this is to say that preaching is the primary means of that occurring. So God's Word is living and active. It's ministering to us with the body, gathered in one place at one time. That's what it's all about. 
And I want to take this one step further, if I could. And I want to ask the question, what would be more important to you? Is it your daily devotion in, in the quiet place on your own with Christ? Or is it being at church on a Sunday, hearing the word, taking part in communion, singing together? All right, the, the evangelical tradition and, and what I imagine most people would say is that it's the individual time, right? It's personal devotion. They say you get that right first, then you come to the group of believers, and then you're able to build into each other's lives more effectively because you're you know more centered and you you've got you know you've you, you've found things from God, you've heard from God in your personal time. Right? And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But that doesn't seem to be that the, the way that the early church saw it. Right? The emphasis was on the gathered church, hearing the word preached and read out. So if we look at some of the verses uh, that illustrate this, so Acts 2.42 from that passage that everyone loves, says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. First Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Romans 16.25, part of the doxology, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 1.21, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Titus 1 verse 3 talks about the truth being manifested in his word through the preaching. Right? So these passages all, all point to this importance of devotion to the gathered church and the gathered preaching and hearing of the word. And this is the big idea that the redemptive power of the spirit comes through the ordinary things that we do at church. Right? comes to the believer and especially preaching. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 89, summarizes this quite well. So the question is, how is the word made effectual to salvation? Answer, the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith and salvation. So instead of seeing the source of our spiritual well-being as always being in our room, on our knees, in prayer, and that that flows outwards into our family, into the church body. We start to see that you know Sunday morning is important, right? The preaching of the word, the worshipping together, the Holy Communion, the Spirit works through those and gives us grace and strength to live for Christ throughout the week. And it's out of that that our family devotion and our personal devotion flows. And I'm not saying, please don't hear me wrong here, I'm not saying that our personal devotion is not important. It's very, very important, right? We need to be in the scriptures, in prayer, every day, asking God. But, but we don't need to see that as the only source of, our, of God speaking to us, right? It starts here. So the preaching of the word is God's primary means of grace to each of us who do believe, right? It encourages, it strengthens, it unifies, it teaches it comforts, and it calls us to holiness. Right, so first point, God's chosen way of proclaiming the gospel is the first reason that we preach. Secondly, because it builds up the body of believers. And the third reason that I want to discuss today is that 
we preach the word because time is running out, right? It sounds dramatic, but it's right here in the text. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Question, has this prophecy come true yet? Right, there's a lot of New Testament predictions about end times, and sometimes it's a bit ambiguous, you know. Antichrist, probably not. The millennium, depends on your eschatology, whether we're in that or not. Uh, the gospel being preached to all nations, right? Another thing that, that the uh, word says will happen before the end comes. Right, all of this stuff has a lot of debate as to how much that's happening these days. Right, with this one, with people turning to myths and amassing for themselves a large number of teachers. Right, this isn't talking about end times particularly, but I don't think there's any doubt about this, right? You can find someone teaching anything, and I mean anything, <laughs> through YouTube, podcasts, books, whatever, right? Any kind of theology, any kind of heresy, any kind of alternative view about Jesus or about Paul, justification for whatever sin you're committing that you think isn't actually that bad, right? People telling you that God's blessing comes primarily through material blessings, prosperity, views that all religions eventually lead to peace with God. You name it, you can find it. I'm not telling you to go and do that, but <laughs> it's out there and it's very accessible, right? And this has only happened within the last 20 years, right? And, and most of that within the last 10, right? So, you know, back in the day, of course, you could, you could seek out teaching on whatever you wanted. You could get a, a cassette tape or a, a VHS, you know, and, you know, you'd go down to the video store. You know, you could find stuff if you really wanted it, right? But the last 10, 20 years has seen an explosion of the accessibility of all sorts of teaching, right? Bit of uh, modern history for you. Uh, podcasts, they were invented in 2004, um, but not really taken up for another sort of two or three years in a major way. YouTube's been around since 2005. Twitter, 2006. All right, Facebook was originally invented back in 2004, I think, but only really became popular around 2008. This is very, very recent stuff that is happening, right? So anyone who wants to be connected with anyone else, at least in the Western world, can do so, right? Connection to friends, family, False teachers, right? <laughs> and people have followers. People, people follow uh, teachers on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter a lot. So what does this mean for us living in this day and age? Firstly, it means that at Christ's sanctuary, we continue to preach the word faithfully, right? So we don't apologize that here we will preach biblical truth, right? And we're not going to entertain ideas that depart from what the Bible teaches, so you won't find us preaching alternative, you know, perspectives on Paul or Jesus, right? Or, or on other key biblical issues or, or new teachings that kind of come from progressive thinkers, right? You're not going to find that here. And, you know, <laughs> some might say that that's boring, okay? You need to be open to fresh ideas. You need to, you know, you don't want to stagnate in the same old theology, right? That's what some people would say. We live in a dynamic world where opinions change and knowledge grows, right? But here's the thing, right? The gospel of Christ, the truth and the wonder of all of that is immeasurably deep, right? We don't get bored of that. 
It touches us in new ways when we hear it, right? God speaking through the gospel, it comforts us, it challenges us, it fills us with joy. And that basic message stays the same, right? And in all of this, it's better to err on the side of caution, of being boring, being faithful, in a world where more and more preachers and teachers are turning away from the truth, right? And everyone is in search of alternative and attractive teachings. So if some theology or thinking comes along that glorifies men and women or suggests that the Bible isn't truthful in some way or that the apostles were teaching something contrary to Jesus or that Jesus didn't care about some sort of sins, right? we don't need that. We don't need that as a church. We have the gospel. And so we reject anything that would seek to distract us from it. All right, so hopefully that doesn't disappoint too many of you, uh, that what we preach uh, fundamentally is not going to change. Right, and secondly, it means that we have to be very careful, all of us, about what we listen to. Just by way of analogy, last month uh, we saw on the news that residents of Havelock North um, in Hawke's Bay, they got sick from Campylobacter poisoning, right? Uh, and that was in their water supply. <laughs> Still is, apparently. And, and we had a large group here from Havelock North a few weeks back, right? And some of them actually got affected by this. Right, so the whole water supply was compromised. No one could trust it, right? So what happened? They brought in tankers. Tankers full of water, right? And this is to be fresh water that people could drink instead of the contaminated water supply. Now imagine that you're a resident of Havelock North, right? And you haven't had fresh water from the tap for a few days, right? And you've been sick. And you're just recovering from your Campylobacter, right? And this truck comes along and there's a tap on the side of the truck, right? And you know there's water in there, okay? And the driver just stands back and says, zip, go for it, right? But there's nothing on the truck, right? There's nothing on the truck to indicate where the water came from. Could have had sewage in it last, you don't know. Uh, You don't know... You know, the driver doesn't have any idea. He just shrugs and says, oh, yep, she'll be right. Just off you go. Right, and you pour a little bit into a cup and, you know, you can't see anything too wrong with it. What do you do? Right, you'd be, I would suggest you'd be foolish to drink that water, right? <laughs> if you don't know, and, and especially if you're going to give it to your kids. Right, so what you need to do first is test the water, right? You need to send it away, do your APC and or your microscope test, whatever, right? And you need to see that the com- you need to see the confirmation that that water is good, that it's not contaminated, and that it's not going to make you sick. But you see, when it comes to choosing sources of teaching and preaching, people just drink it all down without a second thought a lot of the time, right? So a book's got a nice cover, reference to Jesus on it, right? It's endorsed by the right organisation or the right people. Um, or a leading pastor somewhere, um, something's got a lot of likes on YouTube, got a good comments, someone recommended it to you, right? Maybe it has really persuasive arguments, maybe it's very eloquent, right? Makes me feel good about myself, it's a big one, right? The guy on the front has a nice suit and tie and big smile. <laughs> All of these things, right? They may be good things, but none of them tell you if that teaching is ultimately going to be good for you or not, right? And the result is that false teaching can be very, very damaging, right? Campylobacter will make your life miserable for two or three weeks, right? And from what I understand, it is very miserable. But false teaching 
that can lead someone away from Christ for all of eternity. And let me just say this, that more often than not, a mind that is drawn to false teaching is often the result of a heart that is first disobedient to God, right? So what happens is this, God calls someone to repentance about a particular sin, right? That person refuses to repent because they love their sin and they don't want to face up to it. And so instead, that person tries, instead of turning to God, that person seeks to justify their sin, right? Whether this is consciously or subconsciously. And so when a teaching comes along that satisfies that desire for that justification of sin, they leap into it, right? That's what it means when it talks about itchy ears, right? This isn't someone who's got an ear infection and needs some antibiotics, right? This is someone who wants to hear teaching that is justifying what they're doing, right? And I've seen it before, right? So there's a seemingly very solid Bible-believing guy. Uh, started dating a non-Christian girl. Eventually, after a number of years, ended up marrying her against the advice of uh, key people in his life. Right, And then years and years later, right, I catch up with this guy. And he starts telling me all about this stuff, right? He's denying that salvation comes by faith alone, right, through grace. And he's saying that Jesus, in fact, taught that salvation was by works, right? The sheep and the goats, all that kind of stuff. And then he goes on to say that Paul's teaching stands in contradiction with Jesus' teaching, right? Where did it start? It started with disobedience. It started with wanting to justify himself. And you know what else Paul taught that perhaps was not palatable <laughs> to this person? That you should not be unevenly yoked, right? So he's seeking a way to eventually to discredit Paul. And that's how it happens. Theology ends up going way off base, way past what his initial uh, sin was. So my question is, how about us? Right? Is there unrepentant sin in our lives that we don't like God pointing out? And is that causing us to look elsewhere, right? Are we, are we wanting something that will make us feel better when we hear it? Are we being tempted to believe false teaching? Are you continually testing the material that you're given, including what's preached from this pulpit and including what I'm saying right now? Right? Are you testing it to see whether this lines up with the Bible, to see whether it's beneficial for you? Right? Um, Acts 17.11 talks about the Bereans. It says the Bereans were of more noble character than the Jews in Thessalonica because they received Paul's teaching with great eagerness and checked daily to see whether what Paul was teaching was true. So it's a slight paraphrase because I haven't got it in front of me. Right? But these guys were testing what Paul was saying. Right? <laughs> You'd think if anyone had the right theology and the right teaching, it would be him. Right? But that's, there's no... You, you can't be too safe about this stuff. You have to test every teacher, every preacher, everything that you receive. Right? And if you're not sure, talk to an elder, talk to a friend. Right? If you need to know something is legit, then do that. So as a church, we need to take the preaching of the word seriously. And we need to look to see God preaching and moving through in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And we need to be very, very careful to test our sources of preaching and teaching. Because good gospel proclaiming preaching that builds up the body of the church in a setting like this 
is one of the primary ways that grace and encouragement and growth comes to the believer. But false teaching, as we know, is seductive, dangerous, and will ultimately lead to ruin, and we need to be on our guard against it. Shall we pray?